Welcome to Rising. Happy Monday, everyone. We have a fantastic show for you today. Uh, Brianna is off on vacation, but somebody has to be minding the store. So I am here with political commentator Jessica Burbank, who you might recognize from the Young Turks and More Perfect Union, and she'll be filling in for the next few days. So nice to see you, Jessica. Good to be with you, Robbie. Big shoes to fill. It's good to be in D.C. Wonderful to have you with us. Well, let's get right into today's top story. The Wall Street Journal has published a bombshell new report on Jeffrey Epstein's private calendar, including previously unseen schedules, emails, and contacts detailing the wide circle of elites who associated with Jeffrey Epstein years after he was convicted of sex crimes in 2008. CIA Director William Burns had three meetings scheduled with Epstein in 2014 when he was Deputy Secretary of State. A CIA spokesperson told the journal that the two men had, quote, no relationship. White House counsel for the Obama administration, Catherine Rumler, had dozens of meetings with Epstein in the years after her White House service and before she became a top lawyer at Goldman Sachs Group Incorporated. She said she regrets ever knowing Epstein. Leon Botstein, the president of Bard College, invited Epstein, who brought a group of young female guests to the campus. He told the journal he was trying to elicit a donation from the disgraced financier. And then there's Noam Chomsky, the famed leftist political activist and professor who was scheduled to fly with Epstein and to have dinner at Epstein's Manhattan townhouse in 2015. He maintains his relationship with Epstein is, quote, no one's business and that they discussed academia. Director Eric Weinstein weighed in on the revelations on Twitter. The central question remains, was Jeffrey Epstein a construct of the intelligence community? Who, as state-sponsored predator, cannot be investigated by news media cooperating with government for reasons of national security? So that is obviously a theory that some people have had, that he's an intelligence um, asset. I mean, on some level, that's not even a theory because he has such pervasive uh, uh, contacts in the intelligence community and just among famous people, but I think some people have wondered whether he was effectively protected for a long time by the very apparatus of the state or something like that. Right. I mean, my take is that rich white guys are going to hang out. Elite mm -hmm. white guys are going to hang out, and they might do weird stuff. And we know Jeffrey Epstein was likely someone who's doing weird stuff. A lot of people, I think, are surprised about Noam Chomsky, yes. because they're like, this is our guy. How could he ever do anything immoral? But Noam Chomsky is known for his critique of political systems, his critique of economic systems. And I think we can take someone's ideas in that regard and say, okay, he's made substantive contributions here, but maybe he's not a role model in terms of his personal life and who he keeps company with. He never wanted to be someone who was investigated for his private behaviors. And I think he's made that clear. And I think we can take those two things mm. separately. Uh, and I saw Aaron Mate talking about this on Twitter and saying that, you know, I mean, Chomsky is a, a very old man at this point, um, mm -hmm. and he was actually more curious about the revolutions, the revelations that he was meeting with Ehud Barak. I don't know if I'm saying that right. He was an Israeli mm -hmm. um, leader. Uh, but anyway, I, I wonder how the Wall Street Journal got this information. Additionally, this is really great reporting. I, I think mm -hmm. this is honestly like more detail than we've gotten kind of in the past. Uh, people have been really hungering for more Epstein information. You know, why don't we know the full scope of people he met with, the full, his, the full scope of the client list, all of that. Now that this is, you know, information that he was meeting with a lot of people, and, and as I was pointing out, 
after the initial conviction for, for or the, the initial quasi-incarceration or whatever his circumstance was for the sexual misconduct going back to the aughts. Mm -hmm. So why, you know, what is the excuse? I can understand, I guess, people having an excuse. You know, everybody deserves due process, right. you know, before he's brought to justice. But then financial people, the Gates, presidents of colleges, still palling around with him in, you know, after he's done serving time for sexual misconduct with a minor. Yeah, I think that's shocking. I think it's shocking that someone like Noam Chomsky would know his history and still show up. Mm -hmm. I think it's shocking that someone like William Burns, uh, who's someone who's been kind of a darling of the elites. We love to take people who are pretty much state's career men and appoint them to positions. And that happened both on the right and the left, right? George W. Bush and Clinton, Obama and even Biden. Uh, and this is someone who's so entrenched, I think, just in elite culture that these people are going to be in the same rooms, having conversations. Are they power broking? Are they doing business that should be public service and things we have access to? Like, yeah, sure. Should Jeffrey Epstein be involved? Is he getting information he shouldn't be? Maybe. And probably. it would be almost impossible to imagine him not. Uh, you, you can imagine these, these elites, these powerful people he's meeting with. Obviously, it would be insane if they didn't apply pressure to slow down any prosecution of him, right? Yeah. I, I mean, would agree. It, it would seem yeah. like he is, he is so well connected. The, the current this is the current head of the CIA. They went back to went back to government work after after all these connections. Yeah. Seriously, yeah. and, and is still someone who serves with the political establishment. He's not someone who's retired and forgotten about. And I think that's someone uh, that makes this story very interesting that someone like this is, is involved. It's not someone who's just an old man on his way out of his career in mm -hmm. academia like Noam Chomsky. There are people that are still very much making decisions on behalf of the public who are caught up in this. Of course, Jeffrey Epstein is going to receive some favorable treatment under the law in the United States. This is what we see time and again uh, when people who are very powerful end up getting in trouble and who have powerful allies. Uh, they're not really in trouble with the law, but the public might look at them as a disgraced figure. But really, the consequences of their actions are they get to continue doing what they have been doing. And this Catherine Rumler figure you know, has gone from uh, White House counsel, uh, partnership at a white-collar defense law firm, Goldman Sachs. You know, this is this is kind of hit. You know, doing the greatest hits list of mm -hmm. kind of elite hobnobbing, government, corporate, private sector, and back and forth, et cetera. But without Goldman Sachs, Robbie, where would we get our Secretary of the Treasury? We have to get them from somewhere. Uh, that's why Goldman Sachs exists. No, the, the terrible revolving door we have between Goldman Sachs, Deloitte, McKinsey, uh, the corporate consulting firms, the, the bankers, the way that they just come in and out of government at the highest level should be a concern to everybody. Yeah. 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 So this is very interesting. Um, I, I commend the Wall Street Journal uh, for doing this really good reporting. And I hope that there are, you know, more revelations along this line. Obviously, we have the we had the coronation uh, on the other side of, mm -hmm. of the sea in Great Britain, where you know, Prince Andrew was a figure who, you know, brought to disgrace. Right. Also, by the connection to Epstein, I mean, allegations of actual sexual misconduct um, on on his part. So, you know, this is uh, this is one of those stories where you know people, the mainstream media, likes to deride conspiracy theories. This sounds like it would be an insane conspiracy theory. This very well wealthy, pervert, sexual abuser who, ha who can get the Clintons and Bill Gates, et cetera, on the phone in seconds, uh, even, even after he is known to be that kind of individual. It sounds mm. crazy. It sounds like that something people would have made up, but it, it's totally true.
Yeah, these could have been wealthy guys with stuff in common to talk about. People with elites, they like bringing people with interesting ideas who maybe they'll be able to toy with and have disagreements with, like Noam Chomsky. Maybe that's why he was there, just to facilitate entertaining discussions. But I think what's at the heart of this, and the most surprising part, as you've pointed out twice, is that the Wall Street Journal's reporting on it, that this is good reporting mm -hmm. from the Wall Street Journal, which, if you look into it one step further, is owned by Rupert Murdoch. Sure. And he's getting a lot of attention at the network over the recent firing of Tucker Carlson. Is it a coincidence hmm. that this huge story is coming out at this time? I'm not sure. Yes, we've been talking about the goings on at Fox News a lot last week, and we will be talking about it more today in a bit. More rising right after this. The 2023 White House Correspondents' Dinner took place this past weekend. It hosted politicians, actors, journalists, musicians, and other renowned celebrities. Let's hear what President Joe Biden had to say about his past two and a half years in office. This dinner is one of the two great traditions in Washington. The other one is underestimating me and Kamala. Well, well the truth is, we really have a record to be proud of. Vaccinated the nation, transformed the economy, earned historic legislative victories and midterm results, but the job isn't finished. I mean, it is finished for Tucker Carlson. What are you wooing about like that? Like, you think that's not reasonable? And this is what comedian Roy Wood Jr., who spoke at the dinner, said about Tucker Carlson's cancellation. We got to get Tucker back on the air, Mr. President, because right now there's millions of Americans that don't even know why they hate you. <laughs> real, uh, real funny stuff. So uh, another White House correspondence dinner weekend has come and gone. Uh, obviously, there's the standard criticism, which I think perfectly applies, that why are journalists who are supposed to be holding power accountable hobnobbing with the government and then with celebrities, uh, et cetera. I, I didn't find Joe Biden's remarks particularly hilarious, uh, nor the supposed comedian, but um, maybe I was in a cranky mood. I don't know. What do you make of it? It seems everyone must have been in a cranky <laughs> mood then, Romney. The only uh, place I'm okay with the U.S. president bombing is at the White House course. Oh, see, Truly. that joke would have killed. Ugh. I should have written for Biden. It would yeah. have been great fun, but they never would have said anything I would have written down. I think it's absurd that it's like, we have this one night where you can have sanctioned satire, and there's certainly a line that nobody can cross, and we can poke a certain amount of fun at people, and only our guys that we like are invited. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about it. Yeah, obviously taking a shot at uh, Tucker is perfectly fine within the bounds of, of comedy. I don't think that was the funniest joke ever. I think they could have done a lot better, <laughs> but oh well. Um, you know, it's this is a, a time-honored tradition, except I think the year, like, Trump didn't do it, right, because he doesn't have a sense of humor about himself. Right, And exactly. maybe they kind of didn't do it during COVID. I can't remember. I, well, they still did it last year, even mm -hmm. though, like, the staff and all the support people had to be masked because we were doing this, like, half-COVID militancy, but mm -hmm. only for normal people. Like, the wealthy and powerful get to—it's it, over for them, but they mm -hmm. get to shame you for not doing it. So at least that was done and, done and over with, thank goodness. Um, 
Yeah, I didn't see any discourse criticizing social gathering, the lack of masks, That's nothing like that. Over. It seems to be, it's in our past now. Thank the, the main problem with the whole White House correspondence thing is I think that for events like this where Biden has to perform and show up a certain way, he's very different from what we hear about how he is in White House meetings with folks. And I'm concerned that they're giving the in president- In what way, what do you mean? Uh, like that he's a bit slow, sluggish, can't keep his words together, seems to be pushed around by his staff a lot. Uh, and then for these events, when he's on camera, he seems to be good. I think perhaps they're giving the president a bit of Adderall before <laughs> his appearances in situations like this. Mm. Um, but he seems to have a good sense of humor. I think Trump didn't do the you know White House Correspondence Center because he's had to endure Comedy Central roasts, which yeah. Joe Biden has never been subject to. Absolutely not. All right, let's uh, hear a little bit more of what Biden had to say. In a lot of ways, this dinner sums up my first two years in office. I'll talk for 10 minutes, take zero questions, and cheerfully walk away. The president also weighed in on the New York Times discussion of his age. I get that age is completely reasonable issue. It's in everybody's mind. And everyone, by everyone, I mean the New York Times. <laughs> Headline, Biden's advanced age is a big issue. Trump's, however, is not. I mean, it is an issue, though. It's, I don't think it's just an issue for the New York Times. And maybe it's not the decisive issue for most people, but I, I, this isn't like a Hillary email situation where like, it's idiosyncratically only obsessed over a little bit by the media, right? Am I wrong? I think what happened there is they took a Mad Lib of what would be a good joke, mm -hmm. and they were like, all right, fill in name of paper, fill in your, you know, your discretion, the problem you have with this, this news network. It doesn't hold any truth, and I think one of the great parts about jest is there's truth in jest. It's a way to talk about things that we can't talk about otherwise. So is it a good truth? Is it revealing a, 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 or a good joke revealing a deep-seated truth? I wouldn't say so. The New York Times, I don't look at as the bastion of Trump propaganda by any means. And there are many people far beyond the New York Times that are upset about Biden's age. Yeah, absolutely. I'm always struck by the, um the hobnob. So I've, I've never attended the actual dinner. Um, I att I've attended some events, some uh, social gatherings mm -hmm. with other journalist people and the government officials and the celebrities. And I am every year after year struck by how much like camaraderie there is between. I, like I'm not saying it's fake for the cameras, but there is a little bit of of uh, what's the what's the the Bugs Bunny cartoon where uh, where Wiley e. Coyote and the Sheepdog you know check in for oh hey mm -hmm. it's another day and then they check in and then there are enemies and they check mm -hmm. out and it's fine it's a little bit like that honestly yeah uh, they I, clock in as enemies yeah yeah. Day, when, yeah when it's on the cameras it's this but it's it's entertainment mm -hmm. rather than news so the 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 feuds are like they're not entirely fake but they're inflated for the cameras. Right, absolutely. Um, and everybody's palling around a little bit off, off camera. Yeah, there are people who are doing great investigative reporting, independent journalists, that their invites get lost in the mail every year for the White House Correspondence <laughs> Center. There are a lot of people who report on many good things that are enemies of these guys. Uh, and they act like it's, it's this open thing, and in the spirit of democracy and being open, we're inviting everybody. Mm. No. Well, Roy Wood Jr. highlighted the public's treatment of Vice President Kamala Harris thus far. But I think the most insulting scandal 
to fall to the feet of the Biden administration was placed at the feet of our Madam Vice President. The scandal of what does Kamala do? <laughs> Which is a disrespectful question. That's a disrespectful question because nobody ever asked that question of the Vice President until a woman got the job. I don't know what Mike Pence did. The only thing I know about Mike Pence is that he's really good at playing hide and seek at the Capitol. That's just not true. People have been saying, what does the vice president do, like, since John Adams? Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure John Adams felt that way about the role. Um, I, people said that of Joe Biden. I, I guess they didn't say it for Dick Cheney because of the whole, like, puppet mastering George Bush <laughs> kind of thing. But, right? Am I misremembering this? I thought, I thought there's always a lot of hand-wringing about what is even the point of the vice president job. Yeah, I think it's a fair criticism. I think sometimes we use gender as an excuse uh, when what is Kamala doing? I have that question as a woman. I remember when we were deciding, you know, not us, but the Democratic Party was deciding who would be on the ticket. That primary was really concerning when we had Kamala Harris uh, potentially being on the ballot. Because when I look at candidates and I think about the issue of gender, I think which candidate would be the best for women? Would it be someone like Bernie Sanders, who is promising Medicare for all? There are many women across the country uh, who don't have access to health care. That's a good candidate who's going to guarantee health care. That's what I think about when I think about a politician being good in that regard. And we might get caught up, I think, a little bit too much in the identity politics of it all uh, when we should be interrogating these fair criticisms of people in office. Speaking of which, uh, there was uh, talk of, you know, obviously defending press freedoms abroad, mm -hmm. et cetera. There's the Wall Street Journal reporter who is being detained in Russia. That's a very terrible situation. Uh, but of course, no mention of Julian Assange, whose prosecution the U.S. government is still seeking after years. Uh, this is a whistleblower, someone who revealed uncomfortable truths about how the U.S. government operates, who has paid everything short of the ultimate price for this, being, you know, it, it, effectively held captive in an embassy and now actually in prison, dying as a, is still alive but slowly dying as a result of it, according to his family members, and uh, no reckoning, no self-reflection whatsoever about why the U.S. government is still pursuing policies of trying to, you know, bring him to justice. Yeah, the way I see the Julian Assange situation is when you hear the White House press secretary asked about it, we get this answer, it's under the purview of the DOJ. Effectively, I think that is kicking the ice cube under the refrigerator and letting it melt. Like, we don't want to deal with this. We are not dealing with this. Uh, we don't even want to make a meaningful statement about what's going on. That is a huge problem when you can't be subject to real journalism and say that this is a country founded on freedom of the, the press and free media. And that's what sets us apart from these authoritarian nations like China and Russia, how they have state-controlled media, uh, without taking time to criticize how much power the U.S. government has over media and whether or not they're going to fight for people like Julia Assange to be free to do reporting. Indeed. Well, no surprise that didn't come up at this weekend's festivities. More rising right after this. ABC News chose not to air Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s full primetime interview on the network, citing his, quote, false claims about COVID-19 vaccines. Hmm. 
We should note that during our conversation, Kennedy made false claims about the COVID-19 vaccines. Data shows that the COVID-19 vaccines prevented millions of hospitalizations and deaths from the disease. He also made misleading claims about the relationship between vaccination and autism. Research shows that vaccines and the ingredients used for the vaccines do not cause autism, including multiple studies involving more than a million children and major medical associations like the American Academy of Pediatrics and the advocacy group autism speaks we've used our editorial judgment and in not including extended portions of that exchange in our interview we thank mr kennedy for the conversation we wanted to play a bit from the parts of the interview that did make the air why do you feel that you should challenge joe biden i've known joe biden for 40 years i um you know he's friends with my family i've considered him a friend his approach to government and to the Democratic Party is, to me, is completely um, is d different than the way. I don't believe that we should be the party of war. I don't believe that we should be the party of Wall Street. I don't believe that we should let neocons uh, dictate our foreign policy. And I don't believe in censorship, for starters. And those are all values that are traditional Democratic Party values that this White House has departed from. So they did not show part of the interview where he was started giving his views on uh, on vaccines, which and, and his very anti-vaccine views actually predate the whole COVID um, uh, vaccine controversy. What do you think? I thought it was really um, alarming and inappropriate to not air that one of the things he's look if you want to challenge him that can be the moderator the host's role push back you can cite those studies to him you can have an argument or a debate with him but to like uh, you abuse your power as as the network and the mo that's interviewing him to, to like work the format so that so that the audience can't even hear what he had to say on that subject seems really insulting to me yeah. When do we expect the American public to get to know the candidates that they'll have to vote for eventually, if the media has the discretion to show which parts of the candidates' platform they can show and which parts they can't? I think it's absolutely absurd. I'm Robert F. Kennedy has a voice that's like sandpaper, which makes him a little bit difficult to listen to, but that's not a reason not mm -hmm. to show the parts that, you know, you don't want to show because— how many commercials run on these networks from pharmaceutical companies? How much lobbying money from pharmaceutical companies have gone to Congress? How much of his criticism was actually about the science and about, as they say, vaccines causing autism, that he said things like this before? How much of it was actually a criticism of how much power corporations have over our government and which vaccines we actually choose to get? Was he questioning the scientific method? Was he questioning vaccines in their entirety? Or was he making a criticism about the corporate control of Big Pharma on Washington? Right. We don't know because we don't get to hear what he actually said. I mean, this has happened to me in articles I've written where I've I've just like cited studies about about mandates for you know did did uh, did mass mandates in schools help or make the what did they improve the situation? There was some study that suggested maybe they they again it was not against mass was not it was just saying that the mandates weren't making much difference. Yeah. And then when it got fact checked on social media by their fact checking partner, like they blurred out what I had actually said. And they claimed I was saying masks didn't work, even though I never wrote that in the article. So, like, so maybe he said what they say he said, but we didn't get to see it there. And then also just the really naive idea that you can prevent people from learning alternative information about vaccine, incorrect information about vaccines at this point. Like, 
People can Google this. <laughs> like, it's out there. It's not just because, uh, I, what, what network was that? That was ABC. Just because ABC isn't letting you see it doesn't mean you know, they're holding back the floodgates of, of, of wrong stuff. Right. It's, it's such an, it, it's an idiotic perspective to me. And as someone who reads research, right, my background's in data-driven public policy. There are so many papers that are reported on by the news media that get the findings entirely wrong because they don't understand what they're supposed to be taking in. So why do they think they should have the discretion, despite not having a background in this, but a presidential can't? That doesn't make any sense to me. Those two things can't be true in the same world. And if people want to vote for a candidate that is pushing these theories and really believes there's something going on where there's no evidence mm -hmm. that it's actually going on, is it the media's decision to push people one way or another? I don't think that's how democracy works. I think that's way too much power in control of who owns media companies. It's mostly billionaires. That's very concerning. It's not like we have these media companies that are run by the people who work in them, not run by any kind of people who are voting in a meaningful way other than who has control based on their share of dollars. Like the influence of money in media and the narratives we hear in that influencing our political decisions makes someone like Robert F. Kennedy running more desirable for people who are critical of stuff like that. They're like, who is this guy that is the target of the establishment who I already hate? Yeah. I, I'm not denying that there's money has an influence, obviously. With, with these people, my view is it's almost it's ideolo it's ideological at this point from like an establishment like uh, mainstream media reporters, journalists, pundits have really bought into this idea that they are the the guardians against misinformation and misinformation is what's mm -hmm. destroying our society and they have this inflated sense of self that that's their role ironically from the faction that purports to be defending democracy that people cannot be trusted with information that might be wrong and they can't make heads or tails of it so there has to be this aggressive filter and uh, and and they I that I think puts them in a, in, like, from their standpoint, an impossible position how to deal with someone like an RFK Jr. who is very much going to say things that are, like, not according to their approved script. And right. they don't, it's going to be very interesting to see how they handle that. I guess this is how they're going to handle it. They're going to give him little sound, let him speak every now and then, and then, like, blur out the rest, mm -hmm. um, which would just be, yeah, as you said, not a, not a democratic way to approach this at all. It's interesting that it's coming following MSNBC now saying, all right, Trump had his situation in New York City where he had to appear in court, and then he went back and gave a speech. And they said, we're not airing this speech. There are consequences to reporting on this misinformation. It's a total switch from what we saw in 2016, where the, the entire fanfare of it all, of this guy running for public office and he's saying all these crazy things, they really milked it for views, and they were fine doing it then. Uh, they didn't know that there would be consequences to it, then I find that very hard to believe. Uh, and then to take the noble position that, you know, it was misinformation, we can't allow our viewers to be misled, when they frequently allow their viewers to be misled. I mean, the New York Times will publish on randomized controlled trials saying that the opposite of what the finding was or obfuscating the actual finding of the study, and they'll, they'll run stories like that on the front page. So it really rubs me the wrong way when you have a cohort of people that feel that they're above the public. And why do they maybe believe the public shouldn't be equipped to make decisions about scientific research? I don't know, maybe we've really downgraded the public school system in the United States. There's no reason we can't teach people in K through 12 education to read research papers and uh, literally take in medical studies and make decisions for themselves about vaccines. Mm, that's an idea. Well, we'll have more rising right after this.
ousted television hosts, former Fox News host Tucker Carlson and former CNN anchor Don Lemon, are reportedly texting each other, according to Brian Stelter via Vanity Fair. While the content of the messages remains unknown, Mother Jones says the two have exchanged many texts in the past couple of days. Fox News' Howard Kurtz had this to say about these two recent exchanges at Fox and CNN. Now, the big picture raised by the dismissals at Fox and CNN is whether we are entering a new era in which some limits are imposed on what even the most popular hosts can say. Management at all the networks may be more likely to rein in their top talent and insist on fact-checking rather than risk embarrassment or lawsuits for the airing of false information. That, if it comes to pass, might just be a worthwhile outcome. So... It, it was uh, reported that they have retained the same attorney, a famous media attorney, to help negotiate those exits. Um, all, this is the same attorney Megyn Kelly has. Um, I, I certainly believe that they were texting. And according to Brian Seltzer, by the way, this is fascinating, they, they criticize each other on their shows all the time. Yeah. They've never met. They never corresponded. Uh, but because this happened on the same day, they have, and I, I fully believe that they're communicating. Uh, Tucker is a very kind of prolific emailer, texter. Sort of, he 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 stays in contact with lots of people, um, based on my knowledge of him and, and what other people have to say about him. He, he's often, um, while he's very combative uh, publicly with the media, and I'm not saying he's he's combative privately as well, but he's often in contact with people, even if he's very uh, publicly combative with them. So I, I would have no difficulty believing um, that, they're, that they're talking. Um, what are your thoughts on this whole development at Fox and CNN? Is it, is it as Howie says that we're entering a new era? I don't know about that. It does capture my imagination, just picturing Don Lemon and Tucker Carlson in their respective beds at night, just smiling <laughs> at their phones, talking to each other. Imagine the, the lawyer that they share saying, you know, you had a long day. I know a guy who's going through something similar. Yeah. Or maybe Don Lemon just liked a few of Tucker's old Instagram photos and then oh, he I knew see. it was safe to, to take the step. No, but I think really what it is it's two separate things that happened on the same day. Is it coincidence? I'm not sure. I think Rupert Murdoch and his shareholders and his board likely weren't happy about a $780 million settlement. Tucker became an expensive liability, and I think that was their chief concern. Don Lemon has slipped up on the network a bunch recently, uh, and I think the way he's acted, where he's going against the grain with from what it seems Fox wants him to be doing, or from what CNN wanted him to be doing, right? Uh, going after guests, not having his co-host speak, slipping up and saying Nikki Haley's not in her prime, getting caught on a hot mic, saying that Jon Stewart gets away with a lot with his comedy when he's criticizing the Defense Department not passing audits. I, I think Don Lemon was just a bit sloppy, which is something entirely different from Tucker being a $787 million liability. Yeah, I. I my guess is that they were already going to exit Don Lemon and thought that this was a good time to do mm -hmm. it because there was a bigger firing that had just taken place. Um, there are so many things that we, we talked about them a lot on the show last week, but there's there's so much 
going into what was happening with Tucker. There was the lawsuit, although, you know, he uh, he eventually on his show did kind of dress down Sidney Powell. Um, if you were looking for a Fox-related person um, who was, who was you know, really pushing those guests, he wasn't really at the top of that list. I do think the lawsuit may have revealed um, uh, correspondence that he had uh, just about the bosses that was saying unkind things about them that wouldn't have been revealed except for the lawsuit. So it's almost like indirectly it's the lawsuit. I think mm. that bothered people. Um, it will be interesting to see if, yeah, if there's a tighter leash, as Howard Kurtz was suggesting. Um, and a lot of people in independent media, even left media, have said maybe that's not a good thing because, you know, Tucker, and I, I'm sure there's lots of things you disagree with him on. There's even things I disagree with him on, uh, to be, uh, to tell the truth of it. But one thing where he really departed from the orthodoxy, uh, what used to be the orthodoxy on the right in a really healthy way, was foreign policy. Mm. And uh, that, you know, as someone joked that, on any given night, he could have the most far-right show on television and also the most far-left show on television because he would say things about, for instance, Ukraine that uh, that now is becoming kind of the Republican bottom line on foreign policy, but he helped push it in that direction. Yeah. I mean, my main beef with Tucker has always been he makes a case with many sound premises and ridiculous conclusions all of the time. A lot of his criticisms of the establishment, his populist message is sometimes words in the right order that I agree with, but then to go on and make the case for privatization of public goods and not regulating corporations and convincing people that this would be in their self-interest, that actually this will make the things that you need to get by more affordable and easier for you to get, and it'll make your job pay you more somehow. That's my beef with Tucker, but I think he did push the needle for a lot of people towards populism. I just wonder if what he muddied the water it with is going to influence people's brains and make it so that they're permanently poisoned by this mm. Tucker Carlson Yeah, I mean, mindset. some of the stuff you're mentioning is that's kind of standard issue conservative stuff. That's the, yeah. that's the part of it I agree with, but <laughs> some of the other stuff I don't agree with. Um, It'll be interesting to see, obviously, what they, you know, if if uh, he's replaced with someone who does just as well, but is probably unlikely, I think, to have that exact eclectic mix of mm -hmm. views with the. If, honestly, they'll probably have someone who's a little bit more of a traditional conservative, at least on economic stuff. Yeah. I don't know on foreign policy. The consensus has so changed on the right in in like against neoconservatism and against interventionism that I I, I don't know if you'd have someone who's uh, probably not someone who's a who has as much of a commitment to it as Tucker. But we'll have to see. And then of course there's what does Tucker himself do other than like hang out with Don Lemon, I guess. <laughs> They're not hanging out, probably, but... Right, yeah, know. FaceTiming at night. Uh, sure, sure. Having their own show that they're planning together, which would never happen in a million years. I do think it's a new crossfire. Yeah, right? Yeah. That would be... I would watch that, actually. I would but totally watch it, yeah. It would be so interesting to see if it is the case that mainstream media is in lockstep and they're saying we need to rein in uh, our hosts that are saying things that are not super aligned with what we'd like them to say, and how much that leads to people getting more of their news from streaming, which is already a trend. Like, how soon are we from Fox, CNN, MSNBC, from becoming increasingly irrelevant? Like, they're worried about ratings. Uh, who's watching their channel versus every other channel? They should be concerned with who's getting their news on YouTube, on mm -hmm. TikTok. 
on the hill, right? Right, yeah. Other it's, places. It's, this is some self-promotion, which we're all, <laughs> we're all about here. I mean, it's not quite th that case because yeah. they still get, you know, you can have a, a, fo a Fox, CNN, et cetera, they're, giving, they're getting whatever ratings they're getting, but then their clips are put on YouTube and they get, True. you know, they get tons of views that way. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm generally not like, more in favor of reining people in, like that's not what audiences want. They, you're, like coherent ideologies are breaking down and something new and interesting is coming about, which we try to model on this show and shows like where you come from and all that kind of stuff. So it is, the future obviously is going to be different. It's like how rapidly does it happen? I right. don't know. Yeah, I'm also anti reining it in, yes. which should be obvious. We're not reining it in. More <laughs> rising right after this. Former Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey hit out at his old website's new guard, saying it all went south at the company after Elon Musk's takeover. Dorsey says Musk is not the man for the job. This, of course, comes after Musk appeared on Bill Maher's HBO show last night. This uh, woke mind virus, how did it start? Was it bats? Was it an <laughs> yeah. escape from a lab? I mean, what is your assessment of what, because it's fairly recent. <laughs> Why did, why, how did it start and why? I was, so I was trying to figure out where, where it's coming from. I think it's actually been a long time brewing um, in that it's, uh, I think it's been going on for a while. Um, it, 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 and um, the, the amount of indoctrination that, that's happening in schools and, and universities is I think far beyond what parents realize. Um, and I, I only I sort of came to realize this somewhat, somewhat late. Um, the, the, the experience that we had uh, in, in high school and college is not the experience that, that kids today are having um, and, and hasn't been for, I don't know, ten, 10 years, maybe 20 years. Hmm. And Elon Musk obviously has is a lot of kids, and <laughs> I, I think his own experience, reading between the lines, I've yeah. come to understand that his own experiences with the education system with his own kids is part of his kind of political realization into this more uh, explicitly right-leaning figure who's very upset about wokeness and some gender stuff, all that. Uh, you know, he's talked about this kind of woke mind virus phrase, a phrase I'm not particularly fond of because I, I don't, um, uh, I, I don't, in fact, I, like, I don't like when they describe, for instance, like racism as an epidemic or something, like it's, mm -hmm. especially when we just came through an actual epidemic. Um, I, let's, let's be precise with how we describe things. Yeah. And, and Bill also, Bill Maher also said, you know, it's like, was it a bat or something? Uh, right. Really further right. in the analogy, poking fun at it. Yeah. I would say, yeah, maybe Elon's upset that his kids came home from college and they don't like him very much anymore. Mm -hmm. That could be the end of it. But, like, to me, when I think about this concept, they did not like wokeness as it was in its original form, right? The first virus before it ever mutated. Mm -hmm. uh, when it was, hey, uh, members of the black community in the United States of America, be aware of how systems of oppression are affecting us and be mm -hmm. critical of that. Stay aware of it, stay woke. And then it somehow turned into, I'm going to police your language as it offends me, not making an effort to educate you as to why. And also, I'm not going to root my criticism of what you're saying 
in any criticism of systems of oppression uh, as a start of it. And so I don't like the woke mind virus as it sometimes exists and shows up today. But at the end of the day, they're entirely removing this conversation that we should be having about how systems of oppression affect people. And I think they're, they're happy to do that. Are they upset that people might become more progressive after studying in college? Maybe. Uh, but in higher universities, you're going to get some teaching of how governments are run in other places of the world. And maybe you realize there are other ways we could do things than in the United States of America, which is all you get in K through 12. Yeah, I don't particularly object to what colleges being, the academics at universities being liberal. I mean, the conservatives love to complain about the bias here. I think much of the pernicious stuff going on at the university level is actually like other students in the administration. I, I'm always mm. talking to conservatives who are like, the, the professors are brainwashing our kids. And I'm like, a lot of those kids are already came to those ideas because of their peer groups. Um, and then it's mm. like it's administrators who are, you know, hunting down um, free speech dissenters and all that. It's generally not the faculty. But K through 12 is a little different. Um, there are less protected sort of free speech rights in K through 12. Um, I, I don't. I, I think the indoctrination again is not so much from teachers, but is like clumsy kind of DEI initiatives, or that's sort of a workplace thing too, but it has an education component um, with things that are not particularly, it's not just like teaching kids about something, but almost in like a, this is HR compliance mm -hmm. sort of way. That's, for me at least, wokeness at its most annoying. I don't know if that's what Elon Musk is referring to, but that, that's where I, I think the criticism is maybe most productive. Yeah, I definitely see that as well. Yes, in my university, there were people with the, you know, the Nalgene water bottle with a billion stickers on it of all of the things that they very much believe in, and they will correct you if you say things that, you know, they politically disagree with. Those same people would go home to very wealthy families oh, sure. and were nowhere to be found when we were, you know, having rallies after Trayvon Martin's, or yeah, his university or his anniversary for when mm -hmm. he was shot sure, by sure. the police. Like we were there. Those people were not there. No. So when it comes to becoming uncomfortable to fight for things you believe in, I think that group of woke people, perhaps you could call that a virus. What is Elon Musk talking about, though? Probably talking about people who are critical of how much power billionaires have in society. I think he would say that's wokeness. Mm -hmm. uh, I think he would go that far, genuinely. It's people who dissent from his beliefs. Well, we should uh, return to the earlier part of the story. Jack Dorsey yeah. criticizing Elon Musk. And if you recall, when Elon Musk was taking over Twitter, uh, Dorsey was not super critical of Elon Musk. Uh, he criticized some things. He, he didn't like how Elon was treating the employees of Twitter. But um, but he, he signaled some agreement with the kind of ideological thrust that there had been too much um, heavy-handed censorship or moderation. He, he kind of signaled some agreement with that. Um, yeah, look, I, I think Dorsey is probably raising some legitimate. Uh, I have also criticized how some of the things are going. I, I, there's a level of arbitrariness to some of the policies now. Um, I, I don't, and we again have the policy where Specifically, Elon, uh, Elon said he, he didn't. He thought the blue checks are arbitrary, and he's upset with who just got them. And, and it, it should be, you know, fair across the board. You want one, you got to pay for him. But of course, he has 
some people still do have blue checks that aren't paying for them or they claim they're not paying for them. So it seems like he hasn't even improved that. I think he talked a really good game about free speech and all of that, and I, I really don't like what the previous administration did with respect to listening to the FBI and everyone else when they said to take down content. But I don't know that—again, he said good things. I'm still waiting to see the good results. Right. His promise of, we need more meritocracy, I find to be incredibly unfounded from someone like Elon mm -hmm. Musk, who grew up in a, a very wealthy family, mm -hmm. uh, went to very good schools, knew very wealthy people, and pretty much weaseled his way into positions at corporations that he thought he could grow in some way, and took a lot of loans through what would be defined in a court of law, I'm sure, as fraud, uh, to say that you have the capacity to, to manufacture electric cars in a, in a way that he didn't when he got government loans to do so. Is this the guy? who we should say, you know what, you should inst institute meritocracy on our social media platform. I don't think he knows the first thing about it. Well, I, he's built some very successful companies, right? He's, uh, he's a successful business. Uh, yeah, he started from, a, from, a, from privilege and wealth, but now has become like the richest person on earth, in part because of his business success. Yeah, but I would say business success and like, working hard to make your businesses successful are, are two different things. And I think he's someone who does have successful businesses, but Tesla was founded by Mark Tarpanen and his buddy, and, and Elon came in uh, and bought his way to be in the position of CEO. He specifically positioned himself, okay, I want to take the news interviews. I want to be the guy that's at the forefront of this company, despite having been someone who bought his way in and was not an original founder of it. Uh, and then uses places like Twitter, where he gains a following based off of this persona he's created by leveraging his position to get more airtime and, and be the face of this like another Steve Jobs. And then he's able to manipulate the stock position of Tesla. And then, without being particularly profitable outside of selling carbon credits, I mean, that's the story of Tesla. And so, I don't know. I built just a don't rocket that got, know, you know, it got all the way rocket. to space, technically. That's true. That's true. Uh, yeah. There are people that I don't fully understand the criticism, but think that it's like, if you got this kind of loan to do this kind of space travel, if you had this kind of support to, to research this, instead of creating so many rockets that are cheaply made, I mean, they're very expensive, but compared to like a very high quality rocket for what he's trying to accomplish, instead he's just making so many and there are so many failures. Uh, what we hear coming out of SpaceX doesn't particularly impress me either. You gotta, you gotta blow up a lot of rockets to make an omelet. I know, I he's saving the world and going to space and curing the woke mind virus. I just, it's not for me. The woke mind virus will not take root in the Mars colony, I think. Oh yeah. Let's see. Yeah. More rising right after this. President Biden, who officially announced his re-election bid last week, may have to forfeit his first contest in New Hampshire to challengers Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and Marianne Williamson. Politics reporter at Semaphore, Dave Weigel, is here to tell us why. Welcome, Dave. Good to be here. Thank you. So fill us in. I assume the case is it's not that Joe Biden is just is scared to death of uh, Marianne and RFK Jr. and is conceding in humiliation. But uh, perhaps I'm wrong. What's what's the deal? No, they're not scared to death. They're more in denial that New Hampshire is never going to delay its primary or we're not going to concede to having South Carolina vote first. So mm. this is all explained, I think, very, very well by Alex Icewald, MSNBC and all his details are correct. 
there's this very thorny debate about uh, the the primary schedule. Not to get too too deep into it, the problem is that New Hampshire state law says they have the first primary. They are going to hold a primary. Republicans are going to compete in it. What Democrats say they'll do is sanction that so that, all right, the New Hampshire primary on paper exists, but it's not going to count. If you compete, you're not going to get delegates from it. They can do that. The parties have the ability to bend reality. They've done it before. Uh, But the the issue is Marion Williamson has campaigned there multiple times. Uh, Robert F. Kennedy has not been on the trail yet. He's doing more media interviews. But if you poll New Hampshire, he does pretty well. Uh, it's not clear if Democrats will place Joe Biden on the ballot there. You might have a situation where there's a write-in vote for Joe Biden, and I will get to this. But it's all very meta. It's all very it's all very media-focused story because the question is, can they get the media to not care who wins the New Hampshire primary on the Democratic side? So when we talk about these states that have it in law that they must either have the first caucus or have the first primary, that is fascinating Mm -hmm. to me because we're also told that what happens in a primary is party business and therefore not subject to laws that we have to regulate elections and ensure they're fair. I'm thinking of, you know, the primary being rigged against Bernie Sanders in 2016 and 2020. How do these two things shake out? Like, to what degree is this party business and to what degree do you see it maybe having should be regulated by law? Well, uh, Sanders got fewer votes in those primaries, which is the bigger problem, but uh, I'm just being obnoxious. I'm not going to get too deep into that. They, but they do, a lot of Democratic rules are built as uh, on, part, on state laws that are unwieldy, on party systems in those states that are unwieldy. And then when they get to the room in, D, in D.C. that sets these rules, they've been trying to coordinate them so that, okay, well, we're going to have states voting over the period of perhaps six months, by the end of this, we'll have a nominee that's electable. How can we recreate the smoke-filled room? So you're you're right that the Sanders got into the into the 16 race when everyone already endorsed Hillary Clinton. You're going to have primaries anyway. How do we make sure those primaries don't really stop the momentum of the candidate we want? In that way, I think it was it it it, it, it is rig a bowl in 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 a sense. This is a different situation where uh, Robert F. Kennedy and Marion Williamson are going after constituencies Democrats. That have not really emerged. There's not a. There is not. I'd say it's. I, I'm very happy saying there's not sort of vaccine skeptical groundswell in the Democratic Party that like there is a left that has been beaten down by eight years of the administration not listening to it. Uh, a anti. You know, a you have in Joe Biden somebody who solved some of the problems that Hillary had with the base. He is a front runner, but the primary re- relies on on these states having elections that and counting things quickly. I mean, New Hampshire is not as derided by Democrats as Iowa is because Iowa had a party-run system because the state doesn't do it, the party does. The party did an awful job uh, counting votes in 2020, did an awful job counting it in 2016. The system confuses everyone who's not Iowa or a reporter, and that they don't matter anymore. New Hampshire has a fast-counting primary. That's That's been some of their, their, their argument for holding this. South Carolina has a pretty fast-counting primary, but Republicans control the state legislature, a, a supermajority, whatever they want, they can do, they're not going to move the primary up to make it easy on Democrats. So you, what you said, I, and again, I didn't want to be too disagreeable. I just, I just, <laughs> I would agree to the premise that 2016 was ri- was rigged or 2020 was rigged. Um, but the, the, what the party can do in public to control its process is, is, uh, is, is the, is, is put the finger on the scale for the candidates at once in the process and what it has done New Hampshire is lost control to people who are going to be on the ballot, going to be running. Do not care if they get sanctioned. Do not care if uh, they say the wrong thing on TV. Do not care if they get no delegates out of it because they're going to get media attention and they're going to get people saying, hey, 
I voted as a protest for Marion Williamson, or I voted for Robert F. Kennedy because I agree with him. You didn't count my vote. The, the premise you were saying at the start, there are going to be people at the end of this process who say this, this party did, didn't have fair rules, so my candidate got to compete. Now, Republicans did this 2020. Nobody cared. I mean, they canceled. They basically canceled the South Carolina primary and awarded the delegates to Donald Trump. Uh, but there is not the same groundswell. It's it's a less. It's I think it's a more coherent party at the moment than Democrats. We have a lot of factions that do feel that things can get ripped off uh, the way that the parties have structured this, and they don't want to hear about. Oh, it's up to South Carolina to set the primary date. They're like, how come we can't just get a debate and everyone on the stage and an election? On, on our terms, and they're not going to get one. Meanwhile, as NBC News describes RFK Jr. and Marianne Williamson as, quote, fringe candidates, the latest Fox poll right. shows them with a combined 28 percent of Democratic primary votes compared to Biden's 62 percent. Um, you know, Dave, and, and you were there for the RFK Jr. announcement, and you, you described yes. a really fascinating uh, uh, turnout of a, a real mix of people, some some former Biden supporters, uh, some many, you know, conservatives, right-wing people, some true independents, uh, et cetera. You know, they're being described as fringe, but, you know, they're, they're polling at a combined, as what I just said, 28 percent. You know, it's not exactly, it's not like one and two percent, um, but the, the mainstream media obviously is, is, I mean, they blurred part of an interview they did with RFK Jr. And fine, you can think what he says about those subjects is wrong. I certainly think what he says about a lot of subjects is wrong. But uh, I, I don't know about the fringe framing. What are you making of all this? Yeah, I, I agree that it, it's not seemly for the media to say who is fringe and who isn't. And I think it's, it's good for Kennedy in general, if it's not the best vote winning tactic, it's good for him to have that argument because you can say, okay, what I'm saying is fringe. The, the thing that you heard from federal officials about masks not working in May or sorry, before that March 2020. That was fake. Are you a conspiracy theorist? So mm -hmm. I, I don't I, I don't feel that's productive for members of the media who don't have. You know, I think my, we're all we're all in it. But you can take another sure. poll. Do you trust the media or do you trust the politicians? People people think that is skewed against them. I don't think that's a huge problem for Kenny. I think um, the the fact is that that if he is identified as a vaccine skeptic. Um, the Democratic coalition at the moment uh, across all, all, all racial groups likes vaccines, thinks they work, think it's irritating when conservatives don't want to take them. They supported vaccine mandates, which he didn't it didn't support. Um, when when Kennedy gets, I think, some traction with them, it's criticizing Donald Trump for being opportunistic and saying that he was always against this stuff uh, when, he, when he wasn't. But that but right now, I think and look, if you look at the polling, it's a pretty good cross section of Democrats with higher with younger Democrats. What you're seeing there are people who just think Joe Biden is 80 years old. He's going to be 82. He's disappointed me on, uh, I think, the substance I hear most often is like Willow and, and other uh, approval of, 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 of projects that get carbon out of the ground. They won a protest candidate. Uh, Robert F. Kennedy's name is well known. Marion Williamson, I think the fact that she's polling around 9 percent is even more significant I'm not trying to say that you know, her number, smaller number is better, bigger than a Kennedy number. I'm saying the Kennedy name is quite famous. The Williamson name is she was a candidate who was made fun of on Saturday Night Live. And, you know, one in 11 Democrats say, sure, I'd vote for her. What are my options? I'm worried that Joe Biden is too old. So we're going to see um, it's unknowable right now. Once the president starts going out there, getting support from Democrats, there are a lot of people in the in the party who are unhappy with what he's achieved and who are don't think that he can he can win or serve a full term and they're not allowed to really voice that. I mean you saw the backlash 
uh, Nikki Haley for saying Biden would might not survive his, his second term. Look, that's a gauche thing to say, but it's a thing that I've heard voters bring up. So they're they have options now that are that are are not approved by the party. I think that's a good position uh, for RFK and Williamson to be in. I mean, bring back to Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders wanted to win that nomination. Bernie Sanders had to deal with. Uh, you know, an Iowa count that was terrible with uh, Democrat superdelegates endorsing Hillary Clinton before he could get traction. But he wanted to win that nomination. I think in Williamson and RFK, they're in this to change the conversation, the party without a strategy to win the, to win the nomination necessarily. That's a great position to cr- criticize everything about the way the party runs its primary and every issue that it leaves out of the public, out of its official debate. Now, they're going to keep saying we're not getting a debate. I think people in the media are going to are going to say, oh, "Of course you're not, because you're RFK and Marion Williamson. He's the president. Presidents don't debate." The, I think, it, but for, there are lots of people who are going to say, "I want at least some sort of choice, some sort of evidence that Joe Biden can take and give a punch before I vote for him again." Hmm. Dave, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. A manhunt is still underway for a Texas man accused of killing five people, including an eight-year-old boy. After one of them, his neighbors, asked him to stop shooting rounds in his front yard. Police say there are currently no leads and they have no idea where he is. 38-year-old Francisco Oropesa is accused of using an AR-15 rifle to hunt, shoot, and kill five of his neighbors' execution style at about 11.30 p.m. on Friday night after they made the noise complaint. The victims have been identified as Sonia Guzman, 25 years old, Diana Alvarado, 21, Julissa Rivera, 31, Jose Casares, 18, and Daniel Lasso, eight years old. According to ABC News, two of the women were discovered in the home, lying on top of two surviving children, saving their lives. Fox's Bill Malugan reports that Oropesa is in the United States illegally, has been previously deported multiple times with multiple illegal reentries on his record and was last encountered by ICE in 2016. Texas Governor Greg Abbott was accused of insensitivity after referring to the shooting victims as illegal immigrants in a tweet about the tragedy, a claim which has been disputed by surviving family members. Uh, this was a very uh, it, it was a truly insensitive statement from the governor, uh, and I don't. It doesn't even make a lot of tactical sense because if we want to do the whole like, what is our political agenda thing? You know, Democrats want to blame guns, Republicans want to you know direct the blame toward illegal immigrants. Um, it, the killer, it sounds like, is confirmed to be a very illegal immigrant. So it, 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 I don't know why you would like admonish the victims in, in that way. You could just redirect, say, this is you know why we have to crack down on immigration harder or something like that. Uh, anyway, just a horribly, just abominable situation. Um, kind of in the vein of a couple crime stories we've discussed on the show recently, which I don't know that they reflect any actual trend, but they were all stories that became national news about, um, you know, the, the kid who uh, rang the doorbell of the wrong house, the person that turned around in the driveway, the, the, the cheerleader who tried to get in the wrong car, uh, of people um, not for any reason that merits a real confrontation being um, viciously attacked and in, in some cases uh, killed. Um, just, just horrible. An absolutely horrific situation. And horrific in light of the recent news, all of the recent killings that we've had in the United States that have people talking about guns again. And 
it can be convenient to stick to this narrative of this terrible thing happened and the person used an AR-15 and to have a conversation about banning guns when any of these things happens. I get it. People want to talk about the policy when it's on their mind. We've had countries like Australia buy guns back at market price. That is something that the United States government could do. But with the amount of arms in the United States, it would take years for all of those guns to be off of the streets. And I am certain that people who are mentally unstable or who really like their guns and are likely to use them are not gonna be the first ones to sell their guns back. Like, what is the plan if that's really your policy solution? It's not a tangible one. It's not gonna address this violence in a meaningful way. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, like, this person is not I mean, he's first is not even supposed to be in the country, so it's, he's not supposed to carry an AR-15 in the United States because he's not supposed to be in the United States. Um, and there was, you know, there was law enforcement action obviously taken to deport him multiple times. So, you know, I always say, you know, I'm a supporter of the Second Amendment. Um, I don't really support uh, increased gun control, but if we we have some gun laws on the books before anyone wants to introduce like a new plan to disarm people. There's already like if you're a felon, you're not supposed to be carrying a gun. We don't. We're not. We're not prosecuting, enforcing the illegal gun possessions that we already have. So I'm very. Mm -hmm. um, I'm very opposed to any new. Like if there's no. I don't want to get to a place, and it often seems like proponents of gun control want to get to this place where more aggressive gun control measures are only being enforced against law-abiding citizens who are not going to misuse the guns they have anyway. There are people who shouldn't have guns, like people who are already criminals for other reasons. They have guns, and a, a lot of the, the the misdeeds, the abuse of firearms, is in that population of people who already. I mean, and then then the the kind of liberal or progressive side of this, you know, there's a reluctance to support more criminalization, you know, in the kind of criminal justice reform sense, which I often end up agreeing with progressives on some criminal justice reform stuff, but. You know, if you want like stronger action against guns, you're going to have to arrest people for having them. And there's a, a unwillingness to do that that I perceive from the Democratic side anyway. Yeah, I don't know that I would necessarily like want to see that. Like, is that a good use of law enforcement's mm -hmm. time when resources and efforts could be invested into addressing some of the root problems? Like, we had to completely reassess how we interpret crimes when we went from, okay, murders happen because there is motive means an opportunity. Likely there's some kind of personal relationship. They could make some money off of it. There's a, there was a reason people we saw would kill other people. And then we saw the rise of serial killers, where it was people that maybe they had never met before in their entire lives. And there's some psychological ill uh, that causes them to do that. And I think it's an entirely different thing, these kinds of killings, where it seems to be an anger at society at large. And to have that much animosity towards your neighbors, I think, means we need to address the degradation of our communities and the lack of public resources people have if we want to meaningfully address problems like this. Well, and I would again point to um, COVID for that, for the total collapse of social support systems, the alienation that so many people confined to their homes felt. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's very meaningful. A lot, not not this crime, but a lot of um, a lot of crimes in cities uh, are the increased carjackings in D.C., for instance. Here uh, is largely attributable, as far as I can understand, to um, to teenagers with with less with who are not you know who are at the margins and now and then no longer had school and extracurricular activities and things of that or or community support systems and uh, fall into um, a, a bad way. And this stuff is also a reminder always that 
even the mainstream media, I think, obsesses over crimes and, and murders that uh, can be discernibly tied to political hate or ideology. You know, we're mm -hmm. always hearing about hate crimes, and uh, I mean, especially now we're hearing how the right is so hateful and making everything worse, and you know, the Trump effect and all that stuff. When the overwhelming majority of murders, and this is like cold comfort, but have nothing to do with like a political agenda. It's it's neighbors killing neighbors. It's domestic abuse. It's workplace violence, and we should address those things. But we're not, you know, we're not. We got to turn the temperature down. And but it's not really. It's not. It's not one party's fault or something like that. Right. It seems like they want to talk about situations like this as if it's it's not in the context of larger systems that they have any role in whatsoever. Like, it's very difficult to say, mm, maybe COVID was a, a bad time for a lot of people in the United States. Many people were very isolated. Some people were working from home, keeping in touch with their friends via Zoom. There were clear class divisions with how COVID impacted people. If you're not tech savvy, if you don't have the equipment necessary to join Zoom calls, you have to pay for Wi-Fi, and maybe you're out of a job because of the pandemic's impact on the economy. There are so many reasons why I think uh, in 10 or so years, we'll see what's going on in society now and, and point to a lot of it as, okay, that might have some roots in the isolation during COVID. And then how it feels to be a worker and to be told you're so essential to our economy. And then we're actually going to send you off to work without no PPE because we want to get our lattes uh, when we go out for our daily walk and go back to work from home. So I think all of those dynamics are definitely at play when something like this happens. Should again mention that this suspect is still at large, which is uh, pretty remarkable. It sounds like they had him confined to a certain area and then he eluded the, the barrier they set up. Uh, so the FBI still looking for him and he could very well still be armed and dangerous even though you know, they found the gun that he used he could have additional weapons so a scary situation down there uh, more rising right after this according to a scoop from media reporter max tani at semaphore tucker carlson's stance on the war in ukraine it's possible that it could have had a role in his ouster. According to Tenney's reporting, quote, Fox News executive chairman Rupert Murdoch held a previously unreported call with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky this spring in which the two discussed the war and the anniversary of the deaths of Fox News journalists last March. The Ukrainian president had a similar conversation with Lachlan Murdoch on March 15th. Now, according to Semaphore, senior Ukrainian officials had made their objections to Carlson's coverage known to Fox executives, but Zelensky did not raise it on the calls with the Murdochs. Journalist Glenn Greenwald points out this article strongly suggests that the Murdochs talked to Zelensky and Tucker's opposition to the proxy war in Ukraine by the United States. It was a major factor in his firing. I'll await confirmation, but there's one thing for sure. His removal eliminated the most influential anti-war voice from TV. Hmm. What do you think? I think it's interesting that it's been framed and reported on from people close to the situation that Tucker Carlson was indeed the source of Fox News's dissent from, you know, mm -hmm. the United States war in Ukraine. That's fascinating. Do I think it had a key role? No. I really don't. I think there was enough else going on that, you know, many things happen at the same time. I'm sure the Murdochs meet with many world leaders around the entire globe. That's for certain. Do I think this played a role in his firing? I really don't. Yeah, and it, it could be. It could have played a small role. It could be a, a list of things. I, I you know, I, I, I think Glenn's framing there and others, which I appreciate. You're going for the, you know, is is Fox like 
beholden or kowtowing to Zelensky or something like that. Mm. I mean, they, they platformed Tucker for years and years and years, allowing him to make this criticism of endless uh, support that the Biden administration has articulated until the end of time to support Ukraine. You know, they for for years Tucker was able to advance that uh, non-interventionist perspective with the you know allowance of the network he was on. Um, I, I, maybe that made I'm sure Zelensky didn't like that, but I would want to see more. I mean, this is there isn't even really a shred of evidence here. They meet, they discuss, they talked. Does that mean they, you know, they were trying to rein him in or cutting him loose? I guess. Um, also, it's a very limiting way to think because whatever Tucker is going to do now, like he's still going to be, I assume, having a, a big role in the media, whatever he chooses to do, and he'll still be, you know, making. This is the kind of, you know, trying to trying to stop, trying to gatekeep information. He's still going to be having a huge platform. Uh, presumably, his views haven't changed and aren't going to change. He's still going to be making the non-interventionist case. So, just because you get, you know, he's not making it on Fox doesn't mean it's going. It's like silenced somehow. Right. Right. And. I don't think much of what is said in the media today, tomorrow, and the next week is going to influence Congress's decision about where they're authorizing aid to go to and where current foreign aid is going mm -hmm. to, especially when it comes to the United States military. Well, it might influence them if they were getting a shred of criticism. I mean, right now it's, it's controlled yeah. by Democrats. If they were getting a shred of criticism, if Biden was getting a shred of criticism from uh, from you know, whoever the most pro a progressive host on MSNBC or CNN. Mm -hmm. But not only is he not getting any criticism, if if they reduced the aid or gave any indication that there might be an, an end point for which we're still willing to finance the Ukrainian defense or resistance, then they would get criticized. The Biden would o can only get criticized by not helping Ukraine enough. I mean, we saw that when House progressives on the Democratic side, you know, considered advancing that very mild letter asking, you know, do we have a timetable? Are we going to push for diplomacy? Uh, you can say, no, we're not going to tear aid away from them because we don't want the Ukrainians to be killed. But, but future aid is going to come with strings that we all have to sit down at a table and they might have to see, uh, cede territory to Russia, which no one wants to do. But sorry, that's going to be a condition of aid. But even saying that would get you, would get you criticized, on, at least on CNN. I don't know about MSNBC, probably. Yeah, I think the consequence of uh, the media cycle was very clear. I have a friend who was in Ukraine when this happened, but it was the, the Chris Rock, Will Smith situation. Suddenly, the American imagination was no longer only thinking of this invasion of the war in Ukraine. And there was a direct, uh, like, pivot point where they were not getting as much aid to, like, nonprofits and humanitarian groups on the ground in Ukraine. And that really influenced the cash flow to Ukraine, which is crazy, but mm -hmm. it's the short-term American memory. I do agree that we need an anti-war progressive left, an anti-interventionist progressive left that remembers throughout history. The United States has not intervened abroad for benevolent reasons 99% of the time. Uh, and unfortunately, there's not a lot of people reminding folks of that or criticizing that. I remember when the invasion first happened, there was talk of the United States establishing a no-fly zone, which sounds, if you don't know what it is, like a great idea. Like, just don't let the planes with the missiles in the airspace. It sounds lovely. <laughs> not at all what that is. No. Like, that would be U.S. direct intervention in the war. That would yeah, lead to be World shooting war down. III. That would be yes. World War III. Yes. yes. And this is what all of the journalists were asking the White House about. They were just really beating the war drums. 
Yeah, yeah, and and the longer this goes on, the bigger danger is that there will be some accident, that there will be some you know cross, some exchange yeah. that as nearly happened in the Cuban Missile Crisis that does bring us to World War III, even though, you know, we're trying to say, we're no, we're just, we're funding you, we're not involved, but we're, we're so involved at this point, we're extensively involved. Mm -hmm. And the hypocrisy runs extraordinarily deep. Like, if we were to say an invading force should not be allowed to harm people in Ukraine, right, Russia should not, the same logic does apply, I believe, for Palestine and apartheid Israel and many other invasions throughout the world that we're not running media cycles on and showing coverage of and saying we need to put dollars behind it. So then you have to ask, mm -hmm. what is the foreign policy establishment in the United States motivation? Seriously. Uh, and it goes that deep. And unless the media is calling it out, there's not a lot of opportunity for people in their day-to-day -day lives to get that perspective. And having the media be so one-sided on Ukraine is unfortunately more of the same of what we've seen for covering of U.S. intervention throughout history. Yeah, totally one-sided. And it is interesting to me, and, and again, Tucker was a part of this, that the only opposition you're finding, and it's scant, but the only opposition you're finding to what we're doing in Ukraine is really on the right these days. I mean, there's, uh, there's, especially politically speaking, some, there are Republican members of the House. We interviewed Marjorie Taylor Greene last week. She's one of them. And, you know, people will say, you know, she's crazy, et cetera. She's got, said all sorts of crazy things in the past. I don't know, maybe she has, maybe some of them I would think were crazy. But here she is saying something about foreign policy that I very much think is, is not only not crazy, it's sane. And she's one of a handful of people saying it. And the vast majority of those, nearly all of those people have R's next to their name. Like, what is the, what, what happened? It's shocking uh, to me to know that we had people like Barbara Lee voting against the Iraq war. We had people who were very clearly like, this seems like a bad idea when that was happening. And perhaps that was a more clear-cut situation than what's going on in Ukraine. Things are messy. But for some reason, when you criticize U.S. intervention, it becomes so you support Russia, which is not at all the same thing, saying, okay, will the U.S. intervening make this situation better or worse for all of the people involved in terms of where money is going and loss of human lives? That's the calculation you need to make. It's not, do you support Russia or do you support Ukraine? It's, does the U.S. military being there make things better or worse? And my opinion is worse. Exactly. 100%. All right, we'll have more Rising right after this. Stay with us. Well, this just in, a board backed by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis said it will countersue Disney over the state's long-running dispute for authority of the entertainment giant's Central Florida theme park. The move further escalates the ongoing feud between DeSantis and Disney, comes less than a week after Disney sued DeSantis and the board in federal court, citing that the governor retaliated against it for speaking out against Florida's parental rights and education bill, known by detractors as the Don't Say Gay bill. So... The battle for Disney continues. Um, what do you make of this? I love this battle, Disney DeSantis, far more than, you know, Donald DeSantis right mm -hmm. now. And it's been rich for quite some time because it started off as DeSantis saying, okay, you all said some stuff that goes against this legislation that I want to get passed. And so I'm going to retaliate by stripping you from your, your power to have your own municipality, which it's insane that a corporation would have the power to issue bonds and collect their own trash and all of these things. Uh, but then quickly realized our afterwards, 
not only would this be jeopardizing Disney's free speech, which has been reaffirmed in the Supreme Court that they're allowed to make comments like this, uh, and maybe this will end up going back to the Supreme Court, which would be very interesting. Not only that, it's in the Florida State Constitution that all of the bond debt would have to be paid for this to happen. So it's baked mm. into law. Florida can't go back on that contract. They have harder language in their constitution saying we can't do this than the U.S. state constitution, and so or than the United States constitution. So what would we have to do? Raise taxes on Floridians if they were to actually take over this municipality, which would be extremely expensive. So they're at an impasse, and it feels like DeSantis just like wants to get a punch in, and that's what this is about. Well, yes, because he's going to be running for president against Donald Trump. Um, he wants to get to Trump's right on some things, uh, including COVID, which I think makes good political sense, and he has the Florida track record there, but also on the kind of anti-wokeness spirit that animates uh, the Republican base. And I mean, in a lot of people, wokeness is annoying. I find it annoying. Too. Now, there, there's not often a—I've said this before on the show—you can complain about wokeness, but there's often not, like, a political component here because you can't just, like, punish people or companies from saying things you don't like. That's the whole—in fact, I get really worked up when the Biden administration or anyone else tries to do that for First Amendment reasons. This does, to me, seem like a case of potentially at least violating that very principle in punishing Disney. Now, I, now yes. you can make you, whatever the, the tax status is, maybe you should just, it should be, you know, not specifically benefiting Disney, or you could make some argument that, well, they should be just subject to whatever the same law is as everyone else. But to change it specifically for reasons of retaliation, mm -hmm. you're going to get yourself into trouble, I suspect. Yeah, DeSantis isn't saying, all right, everybody, I actually don't think corporations should have the right to say whatever they want. I don't think it should be up to no. the shareholders. It should be up to the governor of the state, what, what corporations can weigh in on and what their position should be, and wanting them to be neutral. Like, that's not what his right. party has stood for. It's specifically about this one thing, and it's a personal fight. And it could have real consequences, because what if this case goes to the Supreme Court? How I think Robert's court will decide, as it's arranged right now, is probably, you know, no, we're not going to allow you to, to tell Disney they can't speak out however they feel about whatever bills you're introducing. Uh, but if it went the other way for this one reason, it's going to have consequences that go against what a lot of the base and people in the Republican Party believe. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, on that note, I saw Kevin McCarthy talking about it on uh, CNBC over the weekend. Here's what he had to say. Well, the one thing I would take, I'd give them the same advice I give President Biden. Why wouldn't you sit down and negotiate and talk? If there's differences, you can always find ways that you can solve this problem. If you think the only action is to go to court, I believe that's wrong in the places is, instead of solving it. This is a big employer inside Florida. I think the governor should sit down with him. I don't think the idea of building a prison next to a place that you bring your family is the best <laughs> idea. I think it would be much better if you sat down and solved the problems. But for the same point, if you're going to be a large employer in, inside this uh, state should also abide by the rules and run your business and don't think you should get into politics. And then he gets additional pushback from the host saying, okay, wait, so you are saying they shouldn't do like the wokeness stuff? He's basically giving his opinion that he'd prefer that the company didn't express views that he doesn't agree with. But I, I thought it was interesting there, kind of really digging into DeSantis a little bit, saying that he doesn't find this fight 
productive. Uh, but there are a lot of conservatives who feel differently. Like if you look at sort of the social conservatives, Matt Walsh type people have been like, look, if you better fight this battle. If you're not going to fight this battle, you're totally useless and you should be, you know, drop dead on the side of the road. Um, this is what we want our conservatives to actually fight. DeSantis is doing it. So, so he faces that pressure. Yeah, I think it's hilarious that McCarthy is like, why don't you just talk to the corporations? Just grab lunch. This is how I handle it. When I have beef with corporations, we talk for a while. We arrive at a number with a dollar sign at the end of it, and then we move on. Like, why can't DeSantis just simply do this? Uh, that's very telling, coming from McCarthy. But yeah, I don't know. People do like DeSantis really taking it to the woke mob. That's his mm -hmm. whole thing. And when they ask, are you planning on running? His response is consistently, it depends what we get done in Florida, suggesting his mission is make America Florida. That's his campaign promise. I don't know how many people are totally down with that and how many people fall on the side of McCarthy, which is, why do we care what the mouse man has to say? Right. He has to win the primaries first, though, and yes. his pitch to Republican primary voters is that he was success in the midterms, the, the single point of success, maybe not the, only, the, the, the brightest light, the, the biggest success, mm -hmm. was Florida. Under DeSantis's tenure, he's massively expanded his own popularity. His, his re-election was a, a crushing victory instead of a, the narrow victory his initial election was. Um, good statewide results for Republicans. You know, Florida has moved from, from a, a real, you know, the, the, the quintessential swing state to a very solidly red state, and, uh, and DeSantis has shepherded that change, whereas the rest of the election results were a travesty for Republicans. Uh, so he can make that case that actually a lot of Republicans do want to want the Florida model. Then, obviously, for a general, he's going to have to pivot way back to uh, wait, fight with Disney. What are you talking about? Good American company. I love jobs, 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 that kind of stuff. But Do we credit DeSantis for the influx to Florida, though, or is, are more boomers just retiring, Robbie? I don't know. Uh, that, well, the p pandemic. I know people who fled there because true. you true. you know didn't have to wear masks outdoors like you did here in mm -hmm. this idiotic city of the District of Columbia. I mean, you didn't have to. Maybe technically they people looked at you funny. They looked at me funny. Yeah. I, I didn't. Um, Are you sure it was the mask, Robbie? No. Um, <laughs> I think, oh, so okay, okay. I think it's, it's difficult running as DeSantis. On the platform, uh, wokeness is annoying. When 60 plus percent of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck, like you've got to give us more. I thought more. you were going to say when 60 plus percentage of Americans also think wokeness is annoying. I thought that's how you were going to finish that sentence. <laughs> I do believe many people find wokeness annoying. However, that word means something that it never used to mean, right? That's the power of, of language in yeah. our politics. They're like, oh, this word describes something that is kind of a threat to our power in some way if people take it seriously. So let's make it mean something it does not. Let's make it about people policing language instead of yeah. you know, teaching others about system of oppression and things like that. Well, so I mean, we, as you said, words change over time, sorry. <laughs> you know, let, progressives redefine language all the time. It's, it's you know, this, you can't say that that's not fair. Mm -hmm. I think you always hated wokeness, Robbie. I don't think you hate the new wokeness in the way that I. I don't do. know. I. Uh, I mean, I don't. I don't. Uh, I don't agree with the "Don't Say Gay" bill. I. I, I okay. don't have any problem with uh, Disney's opposition to it. Really, I. I, I think. I, I tend to get annoyed when uh, there's a hypocrisy angle to corporations being like really worked up about. 
you know, for instance, or marriage equality in the state of Florida or something. Say that's what the issue is. But then, like, doing business in tons of countries where, like, same-sex couples can be stoned to death or something, and it doesn't, you know, their cruises are still stopping there, but they're really mad about... Mm-hmm. I find that kind of grating and preachy and, and uh, inconsistent, but, but I'm not going to do, like, a personal boycott over it. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. What's... Okay, the one other thing that I think could come out of this whole DeSantis thing... We've heard of billionaires like Elon Musk mm-hmm. trying to effectively make their own work camp cities, right? Uh, in in Nevada, by the border of Texas. What do you mean? I don't. By that? I don't. I shouldn't have said work camp. Robbie. Robbie loves work camps. <laughs> loves child labor. Well, I, but I, you know, kids can work. It's fine. They would control it effectively. The town, the stores, all of, and all of the workers would be working there in, in Tesla factories and all mm-hmm. of you know Elon's corporations. That's scary. Reedy Creek having their own municipal district. If this case has long-reaching consequences in any kind of Supreme Court or sets a legal precedent, that's scary to me if they reaffirm what happened in the state of Florida years ago, which should have never been passed uh, as a part of law, that they get to continue to exist and reside over this municipality until all of the bond debt is settled, because it's very simple. They could just not get rid of the bond debt. That's not hard to do. It gives them this permanent status. Do we want corporations to control municipalities across the United States? I don't. Hmm. I am gonna think about it a little bit longer. (laughs) Well, thank you for some expert uh, testimony from Jessica there. More rising right after this. President Biden is now trying a new tactic to reauthorize that controversial surveillance program in public and in private. Administration officials are stressing the need to track Mexican cartels and their Chinese suppliers and their push for Congress to re-up FISA, um, Section uh, 702, specifically before it expires at the end of the year. So Tulsi, they want to use the cartels because they think, okay, we created this problem with the cartels. Now we're going to try to, you know, reauthorize FISA. Now, is that are those all noble intentions? No possibility for abuse, right? You, you know, no, of course not. Of course, they have the best of intentions. What I see when they when I see them doing this is they have declared the war against terrorism to be over, which was the reason that Section 702 and the secret FISA court was put in place in the first place, along with the Patriot Act that we've shown has, has they have shown has been abusing our civil liberties and privacy for so long. But they say the war on terrorism is over. And so now who's the bad guy that's that they have to use as an excuse to continue to abuse their power and violate our rights and civil liberties. It's, it's, uh, they're, they're exposing themselves and their own hunger for power and how much they don't care about the Constitution. They don't care about civil liberties. They don't care about the American people and our rights. It's all about themselves and their own corruption. That was former Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard talking about potential reauthorization of uh, the authority for FISA courts. Um, It's very interesting, interesting Politico article I'm reading about this. So basically, Republicans have turned against this because Trump was spied on and they're all of a sudden they're like, defund, defund the the deep state. It's great. Mm -hmm. I'm all for it. Uh, let's apply this, you know, across the board, but fine, good. So they don't want to give Biden this power. They don't want to reauthorize this power. So now the Biden people are being like, oh, but, you know, we could use it to spy on the cartels and you're really, you know, you really want to do something about the cartels. So I appreciate that Fox News, at least Laura Ingram and Tulsi Gabbard, who's a Fox contributor, are not buying that justification at all because it's crap. Uh, 
I'm reading uh, now some, unfortunately, some Republicans, I feel, will be suckered into this. Uh, in this Politico article, uh, Representative Darren LaHood, a Republican from Illinois, says, when you think about China and Mexico, the ability to use 702 could be extremely effective, said Darren LaHood, who has called for new civil liberty safeguards in the statute, even after the government improperly plugged his name into the surveillance database. So it was used against him, but he can't, he further says, it can play an important role going after the cartels and drug traffickers that are, you know, harming our citizens. Right, yes. Tulsi doesn't want us to see her emails with Modi. We don't want whoa, drug whoa, cartels whoa, whoa, to go unpunished, yeah. okay. right? There's, there's things on both sides, and we have the wonderful task of separating real from fantasy. Here's the thing. I don't think we pass a law that says, okay, CIA, FBI, go ahead, read our you know, foreigners' emails abroad. But as soon as they send an email to someone who is American, shield your eyes. Like, mm -hmm. how does this policy play out in real life, tangibly? It plays out with them surveilling all of our emails and calls and things like that, yes. Regardless yes. of what direction the legislation goes. I mean, we had Bud McFarlane testifying on the floor of Congress uh, after we had the Iran-Contra scandal, saying things like it might look like there's something terribly wrong with how this country does foreign policy but you don't know how wrong. Instead of saying, we have your best interests in mind, anything like that, that's what we're dealing with. This has been true for quite some time. What do you make of the, again, this is an ideological development, the trajectory of the Republican Party as like the anti-FBI, anti-CIA, anti-surveillance spying party. Uh, I, I think it's totally fair to criticize it up to a point as insincere. Uh, but, you know, now we have had at least some concerted efforts. There have been the hearings of the weaponization of the federal government. Um, you know, you can say it's nakedly political. I totally agree. Uh, you know, it is it is an effort to prop up Trump to some degree. But you, you know, they are they are holding hearings. They are complaining about the FBI, uh, the State Department, DHS, the Patriot Act. You're probably more likely to hear criticisms of the Patriot Act on Fox News than you are on uh, CNN or MSNBC. It's That's wild. interesting. It's interesting. It might be, yeah, yeah, we might see that. But I don't know, Robbie. It's like when you say the CIA has uh, an agenda that is, you know, the deep state, which they akin to communism, what has the CIA spent the better half of the last century doing, if not but dismantling communism wherever they can find it abroad? We won't know what the CIA is up to today. Perhaps they're establishing, you know, a woke state, and they're, <laughs> they're really helping us out on the left. I don't, they're I think we need some more help. They're funding the gain of function research on the woke mind virus. They just might not have a lot of experience helping the mm -hmm. left wing win, and maybe they're really trying back there. We won't find out for another 10 years until the National Security Archives gets a bunch of declassified documents. We don't know what the CIA is up to, but we do know that throughout history, they've been helping multinational corporations based in the United States extract resources and exploit labor all over the world. And whenever you have some kind of left-wing regime anywhere say, you know what, we actually think that we should get the profits from the resources extracted from our land and the labor done by our people. And then the CIA steps in and says, we have this new guy, he is your president now, right? There are some additional steps, but that's effectively what's happened for a very long time. We don't teach that history. So of course they think the CIA is a part of the deep state and doesn't have their interests in mind because now there's a disconnect between the establishment right wing, the establishment left and the populist left and the populist right wing. And that makes this more complicated. Sure. I would definitely not accuse the CIA of being, of like promoting communism, as you 
point out they did a lot of overthrowing of unfriendly regimes. Um, but the the they're propping up a kind of no a kind of establishment corporate centrism right. that right is not really unique to one party or the other but there's more right now it's and maybe it doesn't manifest or translate into policy at all mm -hmm. but there is more skepticism of like all institutions um, on the right uh, and now a lot of po Republican political leaders, you're right, are they going to translate that into action against, as you said, corporations? No. Maybe except in Florida if the corporation says something <laughs> about, uh, about uh, education or whatever. But, mm -hmm. but it, it, it is, it's so different the way, the way uh, than, than how things used to be. I don't know. Is it? I think it, well, yeah, the Republican Party used to have, uh, so Ross Douthat in the New York Times had a really good uh, column about how, again, how Tucker kind of represented this change that you used to hear. So Republicans, you know, go back to the aughts. Republicans, uh, conservatives, mm -hmm. think the institution of the media is against them, and they think the institution of, uh, of, edu of education system, particularly universities, is out to get them. Right. They don't have a broad skepticism of every institution. They're not, like, mm -hmm. necessarily against Wall Street or big business or uh, or, or the CIA, or you know, they're not against law enforcement or, or, or national security kind of concerns. Now they're like, with rare exception, against all of those things. Whereas so the Democrats have become more uh, more sympathetic uh, or inclined to hear out. I mean, how many how many talking heads on on mainstream cable news now are former law enforcement people, former national mm. uh, State Department type people? Right. Yes, it's the revolving door moving and moving again. And people like like William Burns, who is now found to be hanging out with Jeffrey Epstein, he was someone who was in the Foreign Service, who was an ambassador. He was someone that was what they call a career state guy, and then gets a position with the CIA. And we find him with these nefarious characters, regardless of who knows what they were up to. You know, was he involved with Epstein Island and the more perverse stuff we associate with Jeffrey Epstein? I'm not sure. Were they just rich guys power broking with each other? We don't know. But there has always been this idea that these career states guys are noble men of service and that is someone who's fundamentally different from someone who's as corrupt as John Foster Dulles, who worked for the multinational corporations. The CIA went on to coup in states where their power was threatened, like in Guatemala. There are people who would say those are worlds of difference, but the everyday American person knows that neither of those actors have their interests in mind. And when you're so disconnected from power, this is the consequence. Mm. John Foster Dulles was an answer on Jeopardy! an episode I watched the other day and there I got go. it correct. And also pointing out the airport, the worst airport oh, ever, yes. which is in the DC Part of area. his legacy. Yes. Uh, tomorrow on Rising, we'll be back to speak with forward party founder and former Democratic presidential candidate, Andrew Yang. We haven't had Yang on in a while. It'd be great to talk to him. And Jessica will be back with us again. Are you having fun? fun I'm having Thursday? fun. We're having fun. Great. Uh, all right, be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, now available anywhere you listen to podcasts, see you back here tomorrow.